So we start a brand new class series today on the teachings and parables of Jesus. These teachings and parables are not presented in the same order by the three gospel writers. So we, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell which one comes when, um, because they will use, they will, they will say next, even if it didn't happen next, um, they just do that as part of their writing. So you can't, it's kind of hard to tell. So I, I put them in what I think is a logical sequence based on the geography of where Jesus was and, um, uh, and just using as many clues as I could, but this is definitely not set in stone. So as we launch the series, I want you to notice right off the bat that Jesus' teachings and parables are intimately woven together with healing after healing after healing. The entire gospel message, the good news, is a message of physical healing and inner healing. And that has been the point of the entire Bible. In fact, one of the earliest class series in the gentle ramble through the Bible was about how the Hebrews were rescued by God from Egypt and wooed by God when they were still slaves and how God loved them and cared for them and brought them out of slavery and made them into a free nation. That love story is in Exodus through Deuteronomy. It is the story of our God as our lover, pursuing his beloved with tenderness and inventiveness and playfulness. As part of this, God told the Hebrews to have regular celebrations called festivals. All of these festivals are intended as huge blessings for the people. All of them are. Look at their purposes. Passover celebrates God's rescue. First fruits is a celebration of God's care. Festival of Weeks, which is also called uh, Pentecost, is a celebration of God's bountiful blessing. The Feast of Trumpets has absolutely no purpose other than God's delight in our happiness and our joyful, loud response. It's just a great big noise-making festival. So even like the solemn Day of Atonement, the most serious festival of all, is all about God knowing that we're imperfect and giving us an annual symbolic ceremony to assure us that God remembers our sins no more. That last one, the Festival of Booths, is a great big communal campout celebrating God's constant provision for our rest and safety. This is what religion should look like according to God. So out of all these festivals, there are three that God says absolutely have to be done all together as a community in one place. The Festival of Unleavened Bread, which is, you know, part of the Passover bit. they, They come together. The Festival of Weeks and the Festival of Booths. So after the Hebrews settle in the Promised Land, the Lord establishes Jerusalem as the special place in Israel for these annual communal gatherings to occur. And no one is supposed to come empty-handed to these community celebrations. Everyone's supposed to bring gifts in proportion to the blessings God has bestowed on them that year. So I want you to notice this concept of tithing. It's like a retroactive look. It's, it's, we're going to, God has blessed us 
we're going to take from what he has blessed us with and bring that to this communal celebration. So each year during each of these three festivals, Jesus Jesus himself travels to Jerusalem to participate. This is a panoramic view of a scale model of Jerusalem at that time. This model is at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Um, and you can you can see people in the foreground, so you can see how big this model is. You can see how the temple absolutely dominates the city. We're from where we're standing in in this photo, we are looking at the temple from the east. So it faces east, so we're looking at its front. If you look north, just to the right of the temple walls, you can see two big red-roofed rectangles. Those roofs are over the huge colonnades surrounding the Pool of Bethesda. Here's a picture of the ruins of those colonnades as they appear today. You can see the structures are massive. The pool itself was divided up by these structures. People enter the pools during Jesus' time, just like we enter big swimming pools today, by wading down a series of steps. It's very fancy. And somehow, over time, a legend arises that whenever the water is ruffled or stirred, Whoever gets in the pool first is healed of their ailments. So as you can imagine, the areas under the colonnades are packed with people who are ill or disabled in some way. And this is where we find Jesus during the festival. We don't know which of these three big festivals it is. We don't know if it's spring or summer or fall. But what we do know is that Jesus is not out partying. He is wandering among those who need healing the most. And he comes upon a man who has clearly been there a very long time. Jesus sees him and Jesus listens to his story. And he discovers that this man has been ill for 38 years. So Jesus asks him, do you want to become well? I find it very interesting to notice that Jesus always gives people agency in their healing. Even something that would seem as obvious as this, Jesus asks first. He asks if the man wants to become well. Tuck this under your bonnet and watch for it to pop up again and over again as Jesus heals people. The man says, I don't have anyone to help me get into the water when it is stirred. Jesus takes that as a yes and says, get up then, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man is cured. He picks up his mat and walks away. And he runs straight into some Jews who say, hey, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And the man says, but, but the guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. And the Jews say, who? Who told you this? But the man has no idea who it was. He doesn't know it was Jesus. It's just a man. And Jesus has slipped away into the crowd. Later that day, Jesus finds the man in the temple. I suspect the man has gone there to show himself to the priest and be declared clean and able to re-enter society. Jesus says, ah, you're well. Now stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. 
And I want to just pause here in the story and, and notice that the New Testament has cast the Jews as bad guys in this story. Jesus is a Jew. This man is a Jew. The Jews are the beloved. Jesus has come to the Jews. Jews welcome Jesus. You know, it's like any non-homogenous group of people. There's people who are, are all fully on board with Jesus and people who aren't. And so I want you to just remember that when we're using New Testament language, that it was written by people who perceived themselves as being persecuted by the Jews, as being rejected. But that cannot be taken as a homogen as a blanket statement for all Jews. And it's a it's a an insidious root that has led to bad fruit. So guard your heart against that. We will be using New Testament language, but but guard your heart. Um that that Jews are not bad guys. <laughs> uh, never have been, never, never will be. So Jesus says, okay, I see you, you well person. So stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So there's tons of things to notice here. One is that just because someone is an invalid and physically needy does not mean they're somehow perfect. They are as internally flawed as any of the rest of us. This man is every bit as wonderful and as awful as any of us can be. He's human. Physical ability or disability has absolutely no bearing on our worth, our value, our identity, or our sainthood. I was reading Nadia Boltz Weber's wonderful book, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. And there's this part in chapter five where she says, when we help someone in need, it is not that we are being Christ to them, nor even that they are being Christ to us. She says, Christ is present in the needs themselves. Christ is present in the needs we have, needs that we meet for each other. We are all needy. And we are all the ones who meet needs. Jesus sees people in their totality with all their paradoxes. He sees our physical needs and meets them. But those physical needs seem to be secondary to the deeper burdens we make for ourselves. Jesus sees these inner burdens too. I wonder if this man's self-pity, maybe, albeit for a very good reason, being sick for 38 years, Maybe, maybe he has internalized something crippling to his soul. Jesus is urging him to break these old patterns of thinking and being, just as he urges us all to come and be healed in every way. While the man goes straight back to the Jews at the pool of Bethesda and tells them it was Jesus who healed him. As you know, crowds have been following Jesus around for a while now. Folks jostle each other to get to the front. Remember that story um, about the time where there was a house and the house was so crowded that guys had to dig a hole in the roof to get to Jesus, their friend to Jesus, because they couldn't get in the door. Well, this this next story is just like that. This, This next story is in all three synoptic gospels. And so, you know, when that happens, it's helpful to read all three versions and blend them to get a more holistic perspective on what Jesus 
might have actually said. Mark says that this time the crowd is so oppressive that Jesus and his disciples cannot even eat. In Matthew and Luke's versions, Jesus is teaching and someone says to him, your mother and brothers are outside trying to get in to speak to you. Now that sounds pretty normal, right? Until you go back to Mark's version. Mark gives us the backstory about why Jesus' family is trying to get to him. Mark tells us Jesus' family has heard all that's going on and they decide that Jesus has lost his mind. So they've come to take custody of him. But when they get there, they can't get in. Someone tells Jesus his family is trying to get to him and he looks around and says, this is my family, whoever hears and does God's will. Jesus lives wholly and completely in the knowledge that his true family is God, along with anyone else who hears God's good news and actually acts on it. It's not that Jesus loves his mother and his brothers and his sisters less, it's that they are trying to prevent him from being whom he must be and doing what he must do. So God is Jesus' chosen family. And Jesus is God's chosen family. Let that rest in your soul a minute. Jesus is God's chosen family. God chose him. God chooses us. God is our family. And when we rest in God and work alongside God and play and sing and camp out with God, we are family to each other. This is a really important point. So Mark uses a special literary device to emphasize the central point of the story. As you know, Mark is all about literary devices. He splits this particular story in half and inserts another story right in the middle of it. This literary technique is called an intercalation. We've run across a handful of these in our gentle ramble through the Bible, and we'll see more in the New Testament. Noticing that this is an intercalation tells us that the two intertwined stories are linked thematically. They are somehow making the same point. So it's very important that we look at them together and let them be in conversation with each other. In a second, we're going to read that story that's inserted here in the middle. But first, I want to remind you that Mark is the earliest gospel. And Matthew and Luke often copy their material from him. And in the copying, they often completely mess up Mark's careful literary construction. And that can make the stories seem incomprehensible when we read them in Matthew and Luke. This is a perfect example. Matthew and Luke don't keep these two stories together. And when the blue story is told separately from the red story, the stories don't make as much sense. So for these two stories, it's a really good idea to consider them as they are presented in Mark. The middle part, what I've been calling the blue story, is an incident where the scribes, who are the religious lawyers, accuse Jesus of using the power of Satan to cast out demons and do his healing. Now, this is no small accusation. 
These healings are billboards from God meant to prove that Jesus is speaking the truth when he says God is here and wants to heal us in every way. If the people believe the scribe's accusation that Jesus is from Satan, then God's whole message of good news is lost. There is a very real possibility that this misinformation will cause people to fear Jesus and therefore reject God. There is literally nothing worse than getting in between God and his people. We're going to see this as a major theme in the New Testament, and it was a big deal in the Hebrew Bible, too. Back in Numbers 20, God told Moses and Aaron to speak to a particular rock, and it would gush out water for the the people who were dying of thirst. But at the time, Moses was really ticked off with the people, and he got up there and made it sound like he and Aaron were making the water gush forth not God. And in doing so, Moses undid all the hard work God had been doing to get the Hebrews to rely on God and God alone. God had been trying so hard to teach them that no man and no idol is a reliable source of provision or protection. And now Moses has stood up in front and declared that he and Aaron are giving the people water. Not good. This was so egregious that God afterwards did not let Moses enter the promised land. He let Moses see it, but Moses was not allowed to enter it. God needed the people to understand that God and God alone was their source of all provision and all goodness, including the gift of the promised land. So this is a huge, big deal for these scribes to get in between the people and God. The coming of Jesus is another fragile moment in the relationship between Israel and God. And for the scribes to say that Jesus is not speaking truth and that, in fact, he is operating in the power of Satan, well, Jesus is not going to stand for that. Jesus says, that's just plain stupid. Why would Satan cast out his own demons? No, the opposite is true. To plunder a strong man's house, you have to tie him up first. What Jesus is saying here is that Satan is like the strong man, and Jesus has had to tie up Satan in order to cast out these demons and heal these illnesses. He's saying he is stronger than Satan, stronger than any evil. Jesus is saying that God is going to heal us, and no evil is going to stand in his way. And Jesus goes on to say, you know, people can be forgiven for anything except what you just did. You called the spirit of God evil, and that can never be forgiven. It is an eternal sin. Well, wow, that's about the most extreme thing we've heard Jesus say. We need to take a closer look at this. It helps to look at the words as they appear in the Greek. I've put kind of expanded meanings in brackets here for you. The Greek says, whosoever has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, meaning they've called it evil. That person has no forgiveness or release of debt. 
to the end of the age, but is guilty of or bound to age-long sin. Now, that word for age or age-long is usually translated as eternal, but the word can also mean and is also translated to mean the current age, which is followed by other ages. For example, like the age of Abraham and the Hebrews was followed by the age of the Israelites in the promised land, which itself is being followed by the age of Jesus. And how you divide the ages up or whether you consider this word to mean a single time span of like forever and ever and ever and ever instead of a discrete age, that's up for interpretation. The words can be taken either way. In my view, Jesus is casting these scribes out in exactly the same way he's been casting out demons. They have simply become irrelevant to God's purpose within Jesus' time and space. Jesus is binding them with words and stripping them of their power, and he's not going to let them impede the good news. He's not going to let them get in between the people and God. That their words would result in some sort of eternal punishment doesn't make as much sense to me in light of this. Moses did the same thing, and the consequences for him are almost the same thing. He didn't call it evil, but he got in between the people and God. And the consequences for him only lasted for his natural life, his, quote, age as he knew it. He was limited to the age of Abraham, was not allowed to participate as Israel entered the promised land. So I'm, I think that Jesus is doing the same with these scribes. I think he's simply limiting them to their physical age, their worldly sphere of influence. He's not, he's, he's linking them to that. He's not letting them wreak havoc in the kingdom of God that Jesus is showing to the people. So you can take this or leave it as you wish. I'm offering this as a bigger perspective, one that draws in both Jesus' current context as well as supporting context from the incident with Moses. So now that we know the story in the middle of the, you know, now we know the story in the middle of the intercalation, let's look at these two stories together to see what Mark is trying to tell us. The rapper is Jesus' own family saying he's lost his mind and is coming to take custody of him, but in the end, they can't do it. And that makes a ton of sense in conversation with the middle story that demonstrates that Jesus is not working in the power of Satan or evil, but is in fact overpowering evil. And just as evil cannot overpower Jesus, neither can his mothers and brothers and sisters take custody of him. He is operating in the full power of the Holy Spirit, and there is no one who can take custody of him or overpower God. So understanding the intercalation helps us see that the point of the story is not that Jesus denies or doesn't love his earthly family. It's that they're in danger of getting between him and his mission. They're calling him crazy, just as the scribes are calling him a minion of Satan. So when Jesus looks around and sees his disciples and says, this is my family, whoever hears and does God's will is my family, He's not denying his family of origin. He's simply saying that he is neither evil nor crazy, but is doing exactly what God would have him do. 
We'll think about all this more in our breakout groups. The next story takes place back home in Capernaum. I'm going to tell you Luke's version of it. It involves a Roman centurion, um, a man who's the military commander of roughly 100 soldiers. And since he seems to be stationed near Capernaum, he's probably responsible for maintaining order in this northern purple region governed by Herod Antipas. Um, The centurion is relatively rich, being paid much more than the average soldier. So it's not surprising that he's got several servants. And one of these servants is gravely ill and suffering terribly. The, The Greek word used here is torment. The centurion is distraught enough that he sends some of the Jewish elders in the area to ask Jesus to come heal his servant. The elders go and find Jesus and beg him to do this saying, this centurion loves our nation. He even built our synagogue for us. So Jesus agrees to go with him. But before they get to the centurion's house, the centurion sends some friends to say to Jesus, don't bother coming yourself. I'm not important enough for you to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I know that's how it works, because when I give an order to a soldier, he obeys. And when I give an order to a servant, he also obeys. Jesus is astonished at this. Not only is this rich and powerful Roman humbling himself politely and treating Jesus as an equal, but he recognizes in Jesus the same authority that he himself exercises as a military commander. Jesus says to the crowd around him, You know, I've not seen this much faith, even in Israel. And so Jesus does not have to go to the centurion's house. Because of the centurion's faith, Jesus is able to stay where he is and continue teaching and healing the people. And of course, when the centurion's friends return to the house, the servant is completely healed. Soon after this, Jesus and his disciples and all the hordes of people trailing around after them go to a town called Nain, which is in the southern part of Galilee. As they near the town, they see a funeral procession. It is the funeral of the only son of a widow. His death is a great tragedy, and there's a large crowd of people from town gathered there with the widow. When Jesus sees her, His heart is deeply moved. The word here describes that rush of emotion you feel when your whole body responds to someone's suffering. Jesus has a deep, visceral reaction to her grief, and he says to her, don't weep. He goes over and speaks to the dead man, saying, young man, arise. And the young man sits up and begins to talk. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. Everyone is filled with fear, meaning that word means awe. And they begin praising God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has looked in on us. The Greek here means looking in on someone you're concerned about, like looking in on someone who is ill or homebound. God is looking in on us, the people say. And of course, news about this spreads like wildfire. Jesus isn't just healing. He's raising people from the dead now. The stakes are being ratcheted up. In our breakout groups, let's go back 
and spend a little time talking over that intercalation. Talk to me about, this was, I got a really interesting story, this story about um, Jesus' family, and he came from a big family, obviously, and um, about the, uh, uh, that whole little thing about Beelzebub in the, (laughs) in the middle of it, which when you read it in the other two gospels, that's the Beelzebub story gets separated from the family story. And then they both are kind of weird. So um, what did y'all, what did y'all think about this? Well, I had first never heard that his family called him crazy. So, yeah, I don't think they get pre- that, that verse gets preached a lot. Yeah. And, and so I always thought he just turned his back on his family. Why would you turn your back on your family? And it's like, I was always confused about that. Well, now this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Confused that Mary was there with him because Mary knew from before the time he was born that he was going to be the Messiah. I but know, I think but... she didn't quite have a grasp of what Messiah meant. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, I think maybe she was scared. In our group that it's possible they were trying to protect him. You mm-hmm. know. Um, from the consequences of what he was saying, mm-hmm. but um, I think they kind of went about it wrong. <laughs> well, you have to I remember really that his cousin, his first cousin, John the Baptist, had has is all is in prison as we speak. Yeah. Uh, I have yeah. trouble with this because of the fact that I have toxic family members who call me crazy, and I won't elaborate past that. But because of that, I um, very much identify with this. So I have a hard time seeing it from his family's point of view. And thankfully, Martha and Lou had better insight on that. (laughs) Well, different insight. Um, Jesus was getting that from both sides. And I think that that happens to the third question, what role does religion play? It was... um, certainly in present time and it's always a little bit dangerous to jump immediately from scripture to present time but i think we see that all the time so for example in florida right now the government and conservative christians the government is using conservative christians and how conservative christians deal with their families to all we've got to protect society against these crazy people who think that we need to learn about things that are better left unsaid. And so it's, it's still a thing. I really relate to that one, Martha, because my family thinks that, yeah, I surely I've had the same thing. Toxic family. Someone have a bird, a parrot. Me, let me, let me. Hey, no, I don't. I wasn't. I wasn't offended by it or anything. I was enjoying listening to. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, get really loud. <laughs> I think that um, uh, this story kind of can resonate with people, partly because I think many people have at least some branch of the family or society that is toxic for them. Um, 
but I also want to keep it in dialogue with Jesus identity with his, what he's called to do. You know, it, I don't want to lose that context. Right. So I'm, I'm not following quite what you're saying there, Gail. What I'm saying is that there's two things in play here. One is that Jesus is on a mission to tell people the good news. Um, And it's really vital. This is world changing, really important stuff that he's working on. His family gets in the way. The scribes get in the way. There's, you know, all these relational barriers, you know, Um, and he responds by saying, it's, it is, my family are the people who are with me on this journey. The ones who are with me, not against me. And I'm wondering if there is some space for dialogue about that scenario versus a scenario where you simply have family who are toxic because of their beliefs, but they are not necessarily impeding you. Hmm. But if you're trying to share love to a community of marginalized people and your family is in front of those people confronting you and calling you crazy, then they are impeding your ministry as much as his family was impeding his. Correct. That would be version A, right? But sometimes we're simply wounded by our families, uh, you, you know, um, not necessarily having to do with our mission in life, right? And I'm, I'm just wondering if the response is different or if there are other layers here that, that need to be teased out. Well, I was telling the group um, when we were talking about it that this, the way I'm learning about this passage now gives me a better understanding of hope hmm. is what Jesus was trying to say is that the people that support you are your family, not necessarily the people you're connected by blood with. And since I never heard it that way before, um, I it didn't really have much hope for me. But now learning about it, it gives me a lot of hope. I think that this is a really good point that Renee is making for all of us, that this is a passage of hope to be shared. That Jesus says, no matter what somebody says about me, you are my family. I embrace you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, 
a personal example that that seems appropriate to insert here. I have a young woman in my life who is a chosen daughter that I met at a gay Christian network conference many years ago. She was raised in a cult in an extremely abusive family. And, um, and they, when she started to pull away, they harassed her online, in person, stalked her around town. Uh, she finally had to go to court to get a restraining order against her biological family. Um, she has gone through years of therapy and has surrounded herself with chosen family who are people who love her, who accept her, who have walked with her through this years of really, really hard work that she has done to heal. And she is now in a place of just feeling like there's been so much healing and so much more wholeness um, and leaving behind the toxicity of those who belittled her and abused her and, and harassed her for so much time. And now they're, they're basically calling her a witch <laughs> and demon possessed and, you know, kind of like, you know, it sounds like on. this story, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and trying to turn other people who have known her in her past against her but she is learning to just let that roll off of her and to just say, no, this is who I am. These are the people who are my family and I want nothing to do with those people. She refers to her biological mother as the egg donor. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she, she had to do that in order to heal and be able to, to love herself. I thought Jesus gave us a strong example here of doing that. He gave us a strong example of you can step away from that, even if it's temporary or if it's permanent. You, you don't have to dwell there. You can move on. And especially if it's moving on in love and, and life-giving and 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 if it's healing for you um i think that you know we feel guilty about leaving toxic relationships we have been trained through evangelicalism that you stay you stay you stay um you must be doing something to cause it you must be sinning. You must be um, not being the wife you're supposed to be or the mother you're supposed to be or whatever. And sometimes you just have to stand in your identity. I am this person. I love Jesus. I love God. I am trying to share God's love with others I know I'm where I'm supposed to be, so I'm going to stand here because that's what Jesus did. 
this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to stand here. And I love that example. And I don't, mm. I want to point out, you know, that it is much wider spread. This The messaging around it's, you must be doing something wrong. It's your fault. And, you know, what, you know, you, you're crazy. <laughs> that messaging um, is far broader than just evangelical messaging. You know, it's 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 pervasive in our society and from many places. And and, but I do want to bring out what you're talking about. That sometimes, also, the people doing it, this family of origin or whatever source this is, the religious community. You know, there were two examples here in this story, are well intentioned. Yes. And are coming from people who genuinely love God. Yeah. But they missed something. Yeah, well, the fruit isn't working. <laughs> right? So, yeah. So what Jesus does here when he stands his ground is he stays, he doesn't abandon the people that he is with, who he has called to him. And that's um, that's said, but we haven't really talked about that as much here. So Jesus says, I know what these people are saying about me. I'm going to hang with you. I've given you a message. We're not done here. I'm not going anywhere. He's faithful to these people. Love that. Love that. I saw such joy in this particular teaching today um, in terms of, because I believe when you are baptized into a faith, you're baptized into a community that we don't get to God alone. We have community to help us. And that is one of the pluses, I think, of joining a church or being baptized, whatever your tradition has. I know my tradition, we had a communal baptismal font and, you know, the whole community baptized, the priest was actually doing them, you know, but we as community said the words and raised Mm -hmm. the hands and, and, um, and, Uh, That message to me is so, when we hear we're not alone, you know, to me, being brought into community through our faith, we may be struggling with the other family issues that maybe don't celebrate in our being called to the spirit, but we are now brought into a larger family that is there to sustain us. You know, we we are truly not alone. And I think that is so powerful. Um, and honestly, I struggle when I hear, and, and this is my own stuff that I need to work on, is when, you know, your salvation is tied between you and God. Well, I I have a bigger view of it that my salvation is tied in community. It's with the other people that I walk within faith that um, brings me to salvation. I, I don't do it alone. I, you know, 
That, that reminds me of the it's powerful for me. I'm sorry, Gail. Thank you. Oh, sure. Powerful. And I walk away with a new word, honey, that I'm going to use. I promise you, incolation. I'm going to it three times in a sentence, and then it's so that was you're going to be intercalating all over the place. <laughs> be doing it. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm going to have an intercalation in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marlene, Marlene you, you had a comment. About, yeah, what Mary was saying about, about the community of faith and the, the communal baptism in the Catholic Church reminded me of something that my daughter taught me. Um, she was confirmed in the Episcopal Church a few years back. And one of the things that she told me was that one of the teachings of the Episcopal Church is that as the community of faith, that, that we are called to walk with each other and, and that the community, when someone is in a situation where they cannot believe, where they cannot trust, where they're feeling like they're in a dark place, it is the, the, the responsibility and the joy of the community to believe for them. Yes, we hold your faith. Through, mm. Yes, to carry them through those dark times until they can once again feel that, that faith on their own. And this idea of we will, we will carry this faith for you and you know, be present with you during this time rather than reject you. Like some communities of faith, if they see someone saying, I'm really struggling, I don't know that I believe anymore, it's like, well, you're trash. Um, and and here, this, this idea of, no, we are all in this journey together, and there may be a day when I'm going to need you to believe for me. And so for right now, I will believe for you and carry this until you have come through this dark place. That reminds me. I thought that was one of the most beautiful things I had ever heard of. <laughs> it reminds me of a song that I used to sing back in the 80s. It was called Wounded Soldier. And it talked about um, how, you know, there were these wounded soldiers in the Christian army and um, the, the, they were just letting them die instead of bringing them healing. And um, that was the, the main line of it was don't let another wounded soldier die. And if you're in the wrong faith community, it's, it's like that. But if you're in a faith community, like the one we have found at our United Methodist Church, which is wonderful, um, we are feeding the hungry. We are visiting the sick. We are, we are a heal, we're a hospital. We're not a country club. And I love it so much. That's why I'm happy I found you all. I've been struggling trying to find a faith community. And uh, I found one. <laughs> one of the things I want to um, talk about a little bit too is the idea of guilt in these situations. Um. So I think 
that so often when we are in an either a, a church or a family of origin where there is toxicity um and we feel and we feel like there is so much reluctance to move away there's just such a burden i i know that that when i had to move away there was a lot of overt messaging around oh no 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 you can't you can't you can't step away you need to forgive and reconcile and you know how do we hold these things what do we do with this There's a Buddhist teaching, studied Buddhism, and there's a teaching that when you have uh, a negative force, and I, I'm probably going to paraphrase it wrong, but bear with me, um, that when you feel that, and in your case, Gail, it was stepping out of your first family, am I saying that correct, and, and moving out of that environment, when there's that force that is not for joy and for love and for light and for, and it's there, the Buddhist teaching is you put it to the side and it has its own energy there and you move forward. And at some point you come back to it and hopefully the inner force in it, whatever the situation is, has worked some magic there. You know, the spirit has worked there. But if not, at least when you come back, since you've set it aside for a while, you've continued to grow and move and think and and discern. And so you're going to see it differently when you it comes back into your circle. And I really like that as a psychological um tool you know because sometimes it's like you're just (laughs) beating your head against the wall and when I learned that I was taking a class I thought you know if we do believe we're energy and in our parlance it's spirit you know if we do believe that it makes some sense metaphysically to me that that there's some truth in that teaching do you agree or uh, it works for me I don't do it all the time, but I have it in my tool belt if I'll just pull it out, you know. What what has been y'all's experience? I agree with that. I mean, you can always revisit it later. And if you revisit it and it's still what it was, you did the right thing walking away. If you revisit it and your relationship with it is different, something changed in you or something changed in them, but it's no longer toxic, then you don't need to continue to walk away from it. But um, I found in, in one particular situation from something that I walked away from and I'm, you know, we're recording and I'm not going to go into details, but I walked away from it and I have revisited it twice. And in both times, the toxicity had ha- had actually increased. The negative energy had increased. And I know that I made the right decision by walking away from it. And I don't need to revisit it again. So I think that makes sense to me. It makes me think, listening to Mary and to, oh, I'm sorry, who was it that was just speaking? Shirley. Um, to Shirley, mm-hmm. that 
you asked a question about guilt, Gail, and guilt connects us somehow to forgiveness. There's the potential for forgiveness, which is not necessarily going to happen, but which is not necessarily connected to a requirement for reconciliation. Amen. And I think that we mistake the purpose of forgiveness if we assume that reconciliation is inevitable, required, must be pursued, no matter what kind of thing. Yeah. Because I think that. Oh, Lumar, what did you say? I just was saying that I agree with that 100%. Just because we can forgive, because we do forgive, doesn't mean that we put ourselves back in that situation or that we resume that relationship. It just means that we can let it go and that we're not drinking the poison anymore and hoping that they die. I, I love that expression. So, um, and not literally you, hoping someone dies, but yeah. Yeah, well, you feel like it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I, I, I tell you something that has, that comes up over and over in um, talking with people who are go actively going through these situations where they need to separate from a toxic situation is that they feel a sense of responsibility to help these folks understand better, to change their mind, to tell them that they're reading it wrong, to open their eyes and, you know, it, and that for many people is where the source of guilt is. It's like, I can't leave. They're dangling off the edge of the cliff I'm, I, what if I let go? There's a really, really famous um, uh, story. And I cannot for the life of me remember the famous philosopher who, who, who came up with this, but he tells a story of, of um, traveling across the bridge over a very deep cab- chasm. And there's a man who he, he has a rope. He hands the, the traveler, you know, he hands this guy the end of the rope says, here, hold this for me and jumps over the edge, you know? Um, and, and so, so he's left like holding onto this rope and what do you do now? You know, if I let go, that guy's just going to fall into the chasm. And so many of the people who that, that guy that's hanging on the rope is like the toxic people, you know, they're, they're keeping you from moving forward. They're holding you there, there. And in many cases, we feel responsible for their lives and don't feel like we can let go. And, and so the, the, in, in this conundrum, I think that what Jesus is telling us is that we can just tie the rope to the railing and move on. It's the bridge by Freeman. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I I think with guilt, I have learned something only recently that really has 
eyes, open my eyes. Guilt can be good and guilt can be bad, just like anything else in on in the world. You know, there's I don't think there's other than evil and true good. I don't think there's really anything that is completely bad or completely good. And the same is true with guilt. And what I have learned to do is evaluate where the guilt is coming from. Because sometimes the guilt is coming from the Holy Spirit, pricking your heart and trying to get you to pay attention. In which case I would name it conviction as opposed to guilt. Exactly. Right. But we all call it guilt. So, you know, that's the good kind. If it's coming from tradition, if it's coming from, but my parents taught me, if it's coming from, is that necessarily coming from a good place? Just because my parents taught me something doesn't mean it was necessarily correct. So then I have to go back to the word and see what God says about it. And evaluating my guilt in light of God's word, oh my gosh, what a burden that has taken that years ago, I was taking every class I could take offered in my church about being a good wife and about being a good parent. And I thought it's coming from my church. It has to be true. But then I started finding that this class I took at my church and this class that I took at my church said totally opposite things. And at that point, I had to understand that might not be what God said. And I have to look and see what God said about it. And that has made a huge difference for me. This is is probably a good place to stop. And we'll pick up next week, um, continuing looking at the parables and teachings of Jesus, because um, today was focused on healing. It was just really interested, interesting that when Jesus starts talking to the people, all of a sudden those billboards pop back up. We didn't see that during the Sermon on the Mount series, did we? When he was doing training with his disciples, the the whole the whole way he teaches changes um, when he when he begins ministering to the people. So it's very interesting, and we will pick it up again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody.